From the kitchen of Who Gives a Damn, it's the IGN DigiGuys. And now, please welcome two men not afraid to make ice cream with bacon, use cast iron skillets, and occasionally remember to talk about movies, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Now, as we record this, we do not yet know who the winner of the Cannes Film Festival is, but uh, we should shortly. And um, I don't really care at this point. I, a lot of a lot of really great movies came out of Cannes that I'm looking forward to seeing later this year. Absolutely, uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, the past. That probably more than anything else. Lewin Lewin Davis is the one I'm really excited to see. I, have the Coen brothers Oscar, ever done? Oscar Isaac is is such an interesting actor, and that guy was like came from nowhere into Drive. And then now he's like, I mean, the Coens snatched him from a supporting part in Drive, where he winds up dead, by the way. And but he's so powerful in that movie. I mean, he is. He's really good oh, in yeah, Drive. His Drive. scenes with Gosling are just so magnetic. And then they just snatched him out and said, you know, we're just going to cast you against because you 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 will play gangsters. And I mean, look, the the you know the, clearly the guy was on the path to be being like uh, playing Latino gangsters for the rest of his life. And they snatched him out and said, we're just going to here do this and. He's, you know, now that guy's going to have a totally different career. Speaking of which, kind of not, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive yeah. and who Wade and I love, yeah. uh, I read an interview with him, uh, conducted at Cannes, and he wants to remake Barbarella. I know. I think it's awesome. I think anything he does is awesome. I, don't I think care. it's awesome. I don't care what he does. I'm seeing it. I, I, I think Refn redoing Barbarella is the most interesting thing I can possibly think of. But I, if, you're a, if you're a modern-day studio, like, for example, if you are, like, a Bob Evans-style studio chief, if you're a David Putnam-style studio chief, you know, if you're a, uh, a Sherry Lansing-style studio chief, you look at that and you just think, that's cool. I totally agree like that. But if you're, like, a Bob Iger, Brad Gray, uh, Jim Giannopoulos-style studio chief, you're like, oh, no, I don't think so. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, he would have to check. They'd have to check with the with the head of marketing. Yes, to make sure. Well, they'd be that, like, "Has this guy ever directed anything that anyone was actually?" Oh, well, I don't know. He's he makes action films. Is he gonna? Well, what are the kids gonna think? If we, let's market test this. Do some uh, run some some uh, some geometric algorithmic BS nonsense to see what the what the the computer spits out as to whether or not this is a good idea. It's like you know what you, you people are supposed to make decisions based on your gut. Just make decisions based on your gut. I know that won't fly well with the suits who need you know quarterly performance, but screw them, screw them. I'm serious. I'm sick of this. It's nonsense. Wade, you're a very angry man. I am an you? angry young man. Well, well, you, you know what might happen? At uh, there was an article in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about what's happening over at Sony, and yeah. how there might be like this bizarre little shareholder revolt at Sony yeah. because they want to they want to take the the shareholders this especially one activist shareholder wants to do this yeah he wants to spin off the movie division from everything else uh, he's, he's the hedge fund guy yeah that's the hedge fund guy yeah he's an idiot he he's wrong uh but the other thing about sony is they were the only ones who came to um uh, to cinemacon with like this with game they came and just said you know everybody else is telling you we're making fewer movies and more expensive movies and they're only going to be tent poles and uh, the movie business is not what it used to be sony came it's like we're making all kinds of movies for all kinds of audiences and we don't give a crap what anybody else says here it is and that to me is amy pascal amy pascal if, if you'll pardon the term amy pascal has bigger balls than all the other guys running all the other studios combined done there's my two cents on that. <laughs> That's beautiful, Wade. I, I, she really is. She's, she's aces. I, I think she's great. So, anyway. We need to talk about movies. Movies and television. Uh, shall we... Shall we, f- here. Shall we this, play a game? Mark, this pile over here represents classic movies. It's giant. It's huge this week. We've got to burn through this. But should we cover television no, first? No, I want you to do the other movies because right now I'm reading an article on The Hollywood Reporter a couple weeks old about the 15 most iconic Star Trek moments. Okay, I'll, I'll do them real quick. Okay, ready? Okay. Should I do them real yeah. quick? Yeah, I don't. This is this is completely impromptu. Go I'm for just, it. Go for it. Wade was setting up for the show, and I started reading this article about the 15 most iconic Star Trek moments. So says the Hollywood Reporter. Okay, number one, uh, the you know meeting Khan in the TV show. Number two, Spock's death. Number three, Spock reborn. Number four. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Fifteen. Wait. Fifteen most iconic. Sixteen. 16 most iconic Star Trek moments. I, I, it's a key the, Star it, Trek moments gallery. Okay, so it's not just key, the TV show. Correct. It's, it's movies and TV show. Correct. All right. Okay, fine. number three, Spock Reborn. Number four... That's not iconic. That's just like bad latex work. Number four, I knew I wouldn't die, Star Trek Five. What? 
Kirk uh, uh, Bones harangues Kirk for risking his life on a rock climb, asking if it crossed his mind that he might die. And Kirk says, "I knew I wouldn't die because the two of you were with me. I've always known no, I die. I've that always known good... I die alone." Yeah, that's a good moment. Which, by the way, he did die alone in the worst death ever, which is number five. Farewell to the captain. Number five, uh, Kirk dies. This is the worst. Kirk dies a hero, although Mc, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell was not pleased with the scene. They gave him such a lousy send off. McDowell recalled in 2011. I mean, what a cheesy move. He falls off a bridge. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so it, that might be one of the worst deaths in, 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 in pop culture history. Anyway, uh, number six, emotionally compromised from Star Trek, uh, J.J. Star Trek. Uh, the first one. Is there anything from the series here? Yeah, this Khan. He meets Khan. Yeah, uh, big deal. Oh, here you go. Goatee uh, Spock from Mirror Mirrors, number seven. Why are we doing this on the show? I don't know. <laughs> we talk about DVDs yeah, this and was your, This was your idea. <laughs> it really was. I was into it. Uh, number eight, Kirk versus the Gorn captain in the arena. Number nine, City on the Edge of Forever, the episode. Number 10, the first Romulan encounter from Balance of Terror there from the original show. Mark Leonard, yeah, baby. Number 11, To Be or Not To Be, Star Trek VI. Um, uh, I guess it's just them yeah. quoting Shakespeare to each other mm-hmm. in Star Trek VI. Yeah. Uh, number 12, Trouble with Tribbles. Number 13, uh, Piece of the Action, the original episode series where they... Fizzbin. Fizzbin, that's oh, right. You got to love Fizzbin. A Mock Time, number 16. Uh, number 14 is A Mock Time. And finally, number 15, The Empath, one of the most controversial and daring original series episodes. Spock, Kirk, and McCoy are subject to torture uh, by uh, solely to determine if a species of empath it's, it's, should it's a earn great the episode. right to stay alive. It's a great, it's a great episode. There you go. Yeah, it's a great episode. That's it. Uh, yeah, you know well, what? We just wasted five minutes. We sure did. About that. My my uh, most iconic moment for me, actually, my, well, I'll give you a few. One is Tranya with the uh, with the uh, Clint Howard in the corporate. <laughs> I hope you I hope you relish it as much as I, or as I used to say, I hope you relish it as much as relish. Oh, gross. Uh, I also thoroughly enjoy uh, going to click my heels and jump for joy. I got a clean bill of health from Dr. McCoy. That was in the Apple. Uh, love when Spock then uh, kind of jams on his funky little harp thing and does a little bit of 60s music. That was cool. And then uh, Sulu, of course, running around with the, with the, a, a, a rapier and uh, you know his shirt off doing his little thing in this in um, uh, the, what, what was the episode? Which one? The, when when the, the the water? It's like the second or third episode. Now now I'm draw, drawing what is a blank. It? Where he's well, running, Corbin might maneuver the no, no no no. Where he's where he's running around with his shirt off. The, the water. Oh, where the water oh, screws everybody up. Yeah. The, uh, uh, not a uh, naked time. Naked not, time. Yeah. Thank you. Naked time. Yes. <laughs> which they which they did a, a variation of on uh, Next Generation, which was called what? It was like it was called the Naked Now. The Naked Now, which is now. really lame. It's horrible. Because they it was need, like the fourth episode. It was ridiculous. Well, because oh, they needed terrible. to break away from the old show. I love what 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 McDowell said about. Uh, about uh, Kirk's death. Uh, they said they gave him such a lousy send-off. I mean, what a cheesy move. He falls <laughs> off a bridge. I shoot the bridge and he falls. That's the best they can come up with? <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's, it goes, considering all the history, this is an icon, loved for decades. Oh, my God. And, and you know that Bill wanted to do a Jimmy Cagney dancing on the way down the steps sort of uh, ending. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Okay, let's talk about DVDs. All right, let's roll through some television real quickly. Uh, you know, Suits, season two. This is a USA show. It is totally in that whole USA vein. They have, like, nailed down that kind of cool and collected uh, white-collar yuppie motif that that just runs through all of those USA shows. I... Uh, I guess. I mean, it's a it's a brand. You know, they've really established a certain hour-long dramatic brand, and I guess it keeps people with the network. Um, as far as legal shows go, this feels like David E. Kelly light in a in a strange way. Uh, it you know, all of these legal shows kind of try to have their own weird little twist, and um, this one's got a few of them, but. You know, like the guy doesn't have a law degree. That's the the twist here, which I don't know. It's have you seen this show, Mark? Suits? I have not. Although it's... although USA has an interesting, uh, they're, they're caught in a weird little uh, weird little space. They can't really do FX, HBO, Showtime, super edgy stuff, you yeah. know. And since they're basic cable, they need to up their game from what the what the big three networks are doing, the big four networks are doing. Right. So they're sort of stuck in the middle of like quirky, supposedly character based shows, and Suits is one of them. Well, uh, I'll tell you what's great is the American Masters installment of Mel Brooks Make a Noise. You know what? The, all these American Masters shows are great. I've loved them ever since they did the uh, the multi-part Chaplin and Keaton ones years and years and years ago, which, by the way, are not on DVD. 
What? That, 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 the, the Chaplin American Masters show has yet to show up on DVD, and I don't know what the problem is. It, it just, it's got to come out. Anyway, uh, this is wonderful. This is just wonderful. Mel Brooks is such the man. I have, uh, I, do you remember when Anne Bancroft and Mel Brooks came to our awards show, and it was for um, when we were giving Arthur Penn the Career Achievement Award? Do you remember that? That was, I think that was a couple of years before I joined. Oh, my God. Gosh, you missed out so totally. Mel Brooks has been to our awards show twice. I have my picture Mel- taken with him. I know. And he uh, th- that was one where Anne, Bank- <laughs> Anne Bancroft went up to, you know, do a, a very elegant introduction of Arthur Penn. You know, she was in The Miracle Worker, right? And it, it was, she was going to introduce Arthur Penn. I have worked with – and it was the whole gracious – right? The, the gracious thing you expect. And the second she gets up there <laughs> in front of the microphone, Mel yells out from, from the floor, show us your legs. It was great, and it just it took the steam right out of the room. It was so wonderful, and uh, you know my my other favorite moment when Jackie Weaver after I introduced Jackie Weaver for supporting actress in uh, Animal Kingdom, and then she did a little spiel for she said oh and you know I I've been married seven times and uh, Mel Brooks I'm staying at the Beverly Region yeah great awesome good stuff so Mel Brooks just, anyway this American Masters is uh, so fascinating. You, I mean, we thought we knew everything about Mel Brooks. You don't. I, the guy has, he is a legend. He's extraordinary. And he's still so on. And he's so humble uh, as well. It's just, uh, it's wonderful. I can't get enough of this. And uh, I have watched it twice. And I think it is, uh, it is one of the great American Masters shows ever. It is absolutely fantastic. Yes, Wade? Carry on. Oh, do I talk to you? Yes, now it's your turn. Uh, NBC uh, picked up a a Canadian show, and we talked about Canadian shows, how they're like the weird, slightly retarded uncle of like American shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a show, a drama called Saving Hope, which is this weird little supernaturally medical drama. Which always seems a little bit strange and, to me. Legal and friggin' medical dramas. Well, it's like a super exactly. It's like a supernatural medical drama, and uh, NBC picked it up, and then it didn't do very well. And they wound up uh, NBC wound up airing the last couple episodes online. So I would definitely pass on this junkie show, Saving Hope. Um, the DVD claims it contains two unaired episodes, which is to say NBC pulled it from the schedule and it wound yeah. up online. Uh, it stars Erica Durance from um, Smallville. And uh, yeah, it's just not very good. So this thing finally wound up its final life is going to be uh, on D- a DVD that I would just as soon ignore. Yeah. Now, wait, True Blood is uh, complete for the season of True Blood uh, is on Blu-ray. This thing just keeps rolling along. I got to say, um, it keeps rolling along. It has a very rabid following and it's on HBO. And it's good. People like this show. And you know what? I have to say, all the Blu-rays of True Blood have been very good. They got a lot of extras, and you can do a digital copy, and they always have character bios and like vampire histories and that kind of stuff. So all the Blu-rays from True Blood, and this one even compl- uh, contains like a, 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 it's got the DVD, it's got the digital copy, and it's got the uh, the Blu-rays in it. So, you know, I get it. People like this show. And uh, Anna Paquin, she has a career. And I'm glad about that, because uh, she was in the piano. Fantastic. Although, you know what? All the women love the Alexander Sarsgaard. I know. They do. I know. I don't know why, but they do. He's dreamy. Yeah. That's why. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, Laverne and Shirley, the sixth season, freaking finally. It's been how long between fifth and sixth season? It's like over a year and a half or something. It's been crazy. I don't know what Paramount's doing. Anyway, it's been a while. And uh, so we finally get the sixth season of uh, Laverne and Shirley, which, is, you know what I most enjoy about this? is the same thing that I always enjoyed about the show. Lenny and Squiggy. That's it. Seriously. Oh, Lenny. Uh, Michael McKeon, who's still going strong, man. That guy, just, he just, he's just always showing up on shows and movies, and he's just nailing it. It's just great. And David L. Lander, of course, is always a lot of fun. I thoroughly, and by the way, if you don't know this, uh, both of them also are in uh, the Robert Zemeckis film Used Cars, and they're hysterical in that film. They are really, really funny. Great, great team. Great couple of guys. Anyway, uh, three discs, 22 episodes. Uh, really no special features here, uh, just some, some promos and a gag reel. But um, the show really uh, strangely holds up. I don't think Happy Days holds up all that well, but I do think that Laverne and Shirley holds up. What? And that's nice. Happy Days? You know what? Honestly, dude, Sunday seriously. Monday. No, there, it's tr- truly, there's, there's some stuff on Happy Days that just does not hold up at all. Awesome. It does not. But Laverne and Shirley does. Laverne and Shirley actually wound up beating Happy Days. You remember that? When Laverne and Shirley was spun off, it suddenly jumped past Happy Days and became a higher-rated show. Well, because, Laverne. Because, ha- because Laverne and Shirley uh, appealed to women. 
a good point. Good I mean, point. Happy Days was very uh, guy centric. That is an excellent point. And uh, I mean, there's really only there are only two major characters in Happy Days. One was the mother. And the other was uh, Chachi as people have or Joni. Often, as people have often said to me, you have a point there, but your hair covers it. So that's it. Uh, and then Eric McCormick in Perception, uh, which is on TNT. This is the complete first season. This is him. Uh, this is not his first effort at reinventing himself uh, post Will and Grace. He's he's done, I think, at least two other shows since then. And uh, it's always tough. This is what's always interesting to me. It's always tough when an actor leaves an iconic role on an iconic show and then tries to sort of come back in something else. It usually takes one or two shows before audiences have sort of can, you know, exhale and accept them in a different part again because there's, the, there's like this sense memory that persists. And it's, it, it's, it's, inter- it's really interesting. I mean, uh, Shatner couldn't he, he couldn't be anything but Captain Kirk for years until T.J. Hooker. T.J. Hooker, and then and then it was Denny Crane, and then it was Denny Crane. But there are these huge stretches between. You know, he has to sort of grow into those roles, and uh, it's really interesting when that happens. So Eric McCormick is now in Perception, which is uh, uh, it's one of these shows. You know, this is these are like the the unholy children of. Um, What's the what's the what's the, uh, the 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 Tony Shalhoub show uh, where he's the uh, Wings? No, no, stop. Where, where he where he's the he's got OCD. Oh, Monk. Monk. Okay, these are like the unholy children of Monk, and House is one of those as well. Where we're going to take somebody and we're just, we're going to like take a, a genre show and we're just going to like make it a tweak. This person's got all kinds of crazy problems. Um, th- in this case, he's a neuroscience professor who uh, has, like, he's got, like, visions and insights, and he can, uh, now he can help the FBI and all of its profiling and all this kind of stuff. So, um, all right, fair enough, but you, you still got to sell me. And he kind of does. I don't feel like he's totally worked out the character yet. We talked about that with, uh, you know, uh, China Beach, how, you know, it takes you a little while to sort of get footing on the show. So I feel like this first season, it's whet my appetite. I trust TNT. They do some interesting stuff. So let's see what the, uh, what the new season brings. Uh, Wade, speaking of let's see what the new season brings, we have um, Teen Wolf Season 2 on uh, DVD. You know, when MTV announced that they were doing a Teen Wolf TV show, I thought, wow, they're going to do like a weird little comedy? Because that's what Teen Wolf was, the original film with Michael J. Fox. It was like a weird little comedy with some dramatic overtones, but still basically a comedy. Well, no, it's MTV, and especially it's MTV in the age of Twilight. So now it has to be like, you know, an edgy drama. And so we have an edgy drama starring a bunch of uh, young, uh, beautiful teenage people. Um, So people seem to like it. Did pretty good. Got picked up for a third season. Can't beat that. It's on Mondays at 10 on uh, MTV. So, you know, the show's really not for me. Might be for you. Uh, The DVD's pretty good. It's got some uh, audio commentaries on, I think, uh, three of the episodes. Uh, There's a reel about the fight choreography, which I think you might find interesting. But otherwise, Teen Wolf is just another... You know, all this stuff is just another metaphor for teenagers finding them finding their place in the world. You know, pack like you know, wolves have a pack mentality. So when you're when you're deciding what kind of person you want to be as a teenager, do you go with the pack or do you forge your own path? It's all just big metaphors for adolescence and growing up. Yeah. So uh, they really hit that stuff on Teen Wolf. So anyway, there you go, Teen Wolf Two, uh, season two. And speaking of teen stuff, that uh, the last TV title here. This is just such an annoying show. This, have you ever heard of Teen Nick? What the hell is Teen Nick? It's uh, it's Nick for older. Oh gosh, older it. kids. Seriously, make it go away. Stop. Dance Academy season one, volumes one and two. This is this this is just a horrible show. This is like somewhere between Fame and Saved by the Bell. Um, and that's not in a good way. It's basically a bunch of kids at a, at a dance school, and it's just horrible teenage soap opera crap. It's just really dreadful, and it is so lowbrow. I'm just amazed. Teen Nick must be such – they must have such low ratings, such low um, demographic saturation that they can't justify budgets much higher than a nickel and a half. This is really not good, and uh, I, I'd say watch reruns of Saved by the Bell. It's a more attractive cast. Oh, truly. Unless you like dancing. I don't know. Maybe, it's like, maybe this is like Glee for tweeners. I don't know. Either way, I, I am so out of touch. Cannot connect with this at all. Um, all right, Mark, we're going to move into movies, feature films, and we have one gigantic, mega important, super awesome, wicked cool uh, release this week. A G-rated movie, a G-rated movie, 
that literally almost sank a studio. What? And it is uh, – you know, what's funny here is the, the – um, the sticker that they put on the uh, on the sleeve, uh, the uh, cardboard sleeve slipcover for Cleopatra, the 50th anniversary release. What I find so funny is this film was so critically maligned at the time and has been such a joke for so many generations since. How are they legitimizing this? They're legitimizing it by the fact that it was chosen for its 50th anniversary to screen in the Cannes Classic sidebar at this year's Cannes Film Festival. And so they put a little sticker on there to make it look like, yep, we were... Uh, it has the imprimatur. The, it has the imprimatur of the Cannes Film Festival. It bestows legitimacy and quality. We are not a crappy film. We have screened at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, that being said, Cleopatra on Blu-ray is a big deal. Um, I, it is a, it is a, it is not as bad of a film as it was considered at the time, especially in today's environment. Um, but it has some really embarrassing stuff in it, and uh, this is one of those fascinating films where a a mega director, in this case Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who I think is still the only guy who's ever won back to back best director awards. Oh, for um, a chairman of the board and Chase the Clown? Exactly, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, he won it. Well, Letter, Letter to Three Wives, and I forget what the other film was, but uh, he won back-to-back uh, Best Director Oscars. Anyway, Mankiewicz, big deal, right? You know, I mean, his brother Herman co-wrote uh, Citizen Kane, and uh, they're, they're like a, a legendary Hollywood family, and Mankiewicz, big deal. He could, he could you know... All About Eve. All About Eve. That, that was the other film, All About Eve. That was it, All About Eve and Laird of Three Wives. Anyway, um, huge director, and was able to sort of write his own checks uh, when it came to Cleopatra, which was this monumentally overblown. They built entire ships. It was budgeted at $50 million at the time in 1968 dollars. And, I mean, it's just, it's preposterous, the money that they spent at the time. That would be like over $400 million in today's money. It's just incredible. Elizabeth Taylor became the first million-dollar performer in this movie, paid a million dollars. Of course, was uh, romantically linked with uh, Richard Burton, so there were all of these, uh, all these things going on on this, you know, is the on-screen romance reflective of what's going on off-screen? Rex Harrison seems to be the only person who really is performing in the movie. Um... And yet, for all of its cheesiness, I look at the opulence of it and I just think that's what Hollywood is supposed to do. And I don't see many Hollywood movies actually, you know, going all the way to the wall like this did. It really is beautifully, beautifully mounted. It's only when people open their mouths that you kind of cringe a little bit, but it's beautifully put together. Well, studios do that all the time. They spend the money. They don't necessarily... Yeah. They, they, they don't necessarily... Uh, uh, like Epic Sweep. Epic Sweep is not really what it's about. It's just about CGI, car crashes, and superheroes flying. Well, I'll tell you. It's uh, widescreen, 2.20. 2. Uh, it's like a little ribbon across your TV. Even if you have a widescreen TV, pretty big black bars on the top and the bottom in the uh, widescreen letterboxing. But it is a beautiful, beautiful transfer. They did a wonderful job. Fox knew that they... Uh, they sort of had to. <laughs> it's the, it almost sank them, so they can't sink this movie. They got to make a little bit of their money back somehow. Some excellent, excellent stuff on here: uh, Chris Mankiewicz, Tom Mankiewicz, Martin Landau, and uh, Jack Brodsky do the commentary. So you get the Mankiewicz family and people who are tied to the film, and uh, it's just it's absolutely wonderful. And then um, it's on two discs, by the way. They split this up on two discs so that you get maximum uh, quality all the way through. Darn right. And uh, excellent documentary stuff on here, too. Uh, Cleopatra, the film that changed Hollywood, is just superb. Uh, the fourth star of Cleopatra, Fox Movie Tone newsreels. It's just great. It's really, really great. I enjoyed this immensely. Uh, even though the movie still has problems, it's a lot of fun to watch. Just set some time aside because it's going to take you about a half a day. Uh, we want to talk about a film on the other end of the budget spectrum. This is a, a bit of a cult classic. It's kind of been forgotten, but it is pretty cool. It's called Rolling Thunder. And this is uh, with William Devane and Tommy Lee Jones. William Devane, uh, pretty much kind of forgotten, but Tommy Lee Jones, of course, is still around, recently nominated for an Oscar for Lincoln. This is, it's kind of a, a death wishy type movie where. Um, Devane plays a guy who comes home to Texas. Uh, he was a you know war hero. He was tortured uh, for years in uh, in um, in a POW camp in Vietnam. And then when his um, wife and son are killed uh, and he's left for dead, he goes on a vengeance spree. And uh, this is a good movie. I think I kind of like Death Wish better, but um, 
I do think Rolling Thunder is a cool film. Tarantino loves this film, actually. Tarantino, I think, named one of his... Uh, he named his company, after. He named, yeah, he had a distribution well, company. Oh, no, that was what it was. It was the Miramax distribution uh, shingle, right. as they say in the biz. It was called Rolling Thunder Pictures or something like that. Yeah, they got, they got like four movies under their belt before Harvey pulled the plug on it. Right. Um, so, <laughs> poor Harvey. Pull the plug on poor Quentin. Yep. Um, anyway, so you know what? Rolling Thunder is a cool movie. If you want to kind of like, if you're if you're a total like Quentin Tarantino-y, like old school, totally cool B-movie geeky type person, I would absolutely rent Rolling Thunder. And tell us what you think, by the way, gods, digigods.com. Uh, Rolling Thunder on Blu-ray. Is it worth being on Blu-ray? Of course not. It's a really old movie. I'm going to talk about some sleazy stuff right now, some, uh, some schlocky stuff, and then uh, Mark will tell us about some really cool stuff. Uh, so just to get some exploitation titles under our belts this week, we've got the Eurosleaze collection from Severin. These are films that have been released previously, but they're all boxed up now. Uh, Hannah D., the girl from Vondel Park, the sinful dwarf, and the sister of Ursula. Uh, none of these are any good, but they are an awful lot of fun to watch because they're just so silly. The sinful dwarf, it might be my favorite one because it's, uh, made, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's got, it's got a dwarf in it for crying out loud. And, uh, it's totally exploitive and it's, uh, it's embarrassing in a really, really good way. The, uh, that film comes from Denmark in 1974. Hannah D., of course, was a French-Italian co-production from 1982. It's barely an exploitation film because once we get into the 80s, that's like the uh, the trauma era. And then uh, Sister of Ursula was an Italian film from 1978 that just shouldn't even be Italian. It's like an embarrassment to, um, to giallo films. Uh, Impulse Pictures gives us Sexcula. She'll suck more than your blood. <laughs> wow. Uh, right? Putting that out there. I, it's, it's just gorgeous. Uh, this is from 1974. Uh, it's truly, truly horrible and absolutely hilarious. And um, the liner notes here are a riot to actually read. The, the liner notes were written by a guy named Demetrios Otis, which I'm sure is not his real name, but he calls himself a porn archaeologist. And uh, this is just this is this is why Canadians didn't make any more exploitation films of this nature because Canada, you, you, you just, I don't know, they just don't. It's not funny enough. Uh, this is actually a pretty cool film. Jack Lord stars in The Name of the Game is Kill, which also has Susan Strasberg in it. Uh, and uh, I can't exactly say that she does the Strasberg family proud with her acting, but um, this is not a bad film. This was kind of a cool little um low budget attempt at taking off on the uh, on psycho and you know the the um the schlocky uh, slasher film genre that was just starting to take off in the late 60s from 1968 and uh clearly you know psycho is the touchstone here but it's cool because jack uh, jack lord who would go on to uh, fame in uh, hawaii 50 is a hell of an actor and he kind of brings a different uh, cachet to this film. So that was, uh, that was a pleasant surprise. And then the last film here is Zeta One, which is a 1969 British film that is uh, a total riot. This is from the Jezebel line over at uh, Kino Lorber. It's on Blu-ray. And as far as James Bond spoofs go, uh, this is kind of like a spoof of James Bond and a spoof of Barbarella all at the same time. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, it is low budget, it is hilarious, and uh, it is well worth watching, especially on Blu-ray, because they retain all the grain and all the flaws of the original film stock. It's a riot to watch. you got to check it out. And the screenplay, uh, co-written, by the way, by uh, Christopher Neem. I have not been able to confirm whether or not he's a relationship to uh, Ronald, Ronald Neem. Neem but directed I would, Poseidon Adventure. But I would bet that it's, 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 it's a, some relationship, a son or a nephew or something. Maybe you know what you are so sexist. Maybe it's the daughter or the, or the wife. Yeah. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> Wait. Um, let me tell you something. You know, in the early days of Hollywood, certain studios were known for certain films. MGM they made musicals. Universal made horror films. And Warner Brothers Wade they made gangster films. And uh, Wade and I are kind of hot and cold on box sets where they just sort of take a bunch of movies and they throw them together into a box set. Like, oh, look, here's some films that we really can't sell separately, so let's put them together in a box set, and you'll buy them because you're stupid. Well, I'm glad to announce that uh, Warner Brothers has two Blu-ray sets that I can honestly say are totally, completely worth it because the price is right. We have Ultimate Gangsters Collection Classics, and we have Ultimate Gangsters Collection Contemporary. 
Oh yeah. Ultimate Gangsters Collection Collection uh, Classics includes these four fine motion pictures: Little Caesar, White Heat, The Petrified Forest, uh, and The Public Enemy. Now, Wade, for those who love grapefruit, we love The Public Enemy from 1931. It's one of the most iconic moments in movie history, and it's just—I don't know why. I don't know why. It's well, because it was—it was, I mean, it was very brutal. I mean, for 1931. And we're talking, you know, 19th was kind of pre-code era, right? That is, that's a brutal way to, it, shoving a grapefruit in a woman's face, that's what Cagney did in Public yeah. Enemy, was considered like a scandalous, brutal thing to do in a movie. Anyway, all, all these films are good, and there's also a fifth disc. It is a feature-length documentary, Public Enemies, the golden age of the gangster film. So these are all great films. White Heat, Petrified Forest, Little Caesar, Public Enemy, not a dud in the bunch. And they look great on Blu-ray, and they include some of, if not all, of the extras that were on the original Blu-ray releases, the single releases. And then on um, Ultimate Gangsters Collection Contemporary, we have, drumroll please, Mean Streets, The Untouchables, Goodfellas, Heat, and The Departed. Uh, there's just not, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of The Departed, but there is not a dud in that bunch. Not a dud. These are great films. Mean Streets is great. Untouchables, I rewatched recently, and I love that movie. It's a great movie. Goodfellas is like beyond. Heat is just terrific, too. And The Departed, whatever, won Best Picture and won Scorsese, his long overdue Best Director Oscar, but still, it's, you know, it's okay. Anyway, but you know what? All great films. All great films. And so we have Warner Brothers knocking out of the park with uh, two box sets, Ultimate Gangsters Collection Classics and Ultimate Gangsters Collection Contemporary. Wade Major, I say... Considering the cost, considering the price, it is cut rate priced. If you don't own any of these, you should definitely consider these Blu-ray sets. Awesome. Thank you, Mark Kaiser. We'll be right back. I, I'm, I, I like I like how you've gone. Uh, I like how you've gone casual with your microphone. I'm holding the mic in my hand. <laughs> like, and it's so actually, can... I think it's uh, really improving my performance. That's very good. So uh, Olive has a bunch of titles that they've released recently, and uh, they've been, of course, mining the old John Wayne films very effectively from uh, the old Paramount John Wayne films that no one else would ever ever release. Uh, John Wayne and The Lonely Trail is now on Blu-ray, and uh, The Lonely Trail is one of those movies that shows up in all of those public domain collections over and over and over and over. And uh, I, I'm, I, I, my guess is here that they probably – I'm not sure that it, it really wa- ever was a public domain film. I guess Paramount just never cared. In any case, this finally gives the film the look that it really, really deserves. And uh, it, is, it is a beautiful Blu-ray transfer. Thank you to Olive uh, from 1936. It's only an hour long. It's barely – it's like under an hour long. So it's uh, – you know, you, this is like as, as short as a television episode. And it's not John Wayne at his best, but it is uh, – he's definitely kind of on the ascent – as, as an actor. Uh, Pals of the Saddle is one of the Three Musketeers line that uh, John Wayne did with Ray Corrigan and Max Terhune. And, uh, you know, those were just uh, programmers. They were just uh, barely sort of, sort of serials. Um, they were just B-Westerns uh, made in the 1930s that uh, just got people addicted to these characters, and they had a certain shtick going. And Wayne, of course, has not quite come into his own, but if you've collected the others in this line, you'll, you'll thoroughly enjoy this one. And the A-list uh, title, or at least as close to an A-list as we get with Wayne this week, is Three Faces West. Um, which is, uh, again, not one of Wayne's very best films, but it's, it's from 1940, so this is when he is kind of starting to turn and become more of a leading man and doing a little bit more. This is like after he did Stagecoach. People know who he is now. And uh, the director, Bernard Vorhaus, not a great director, n- uh, not a guy who had a particularly uh, noteworthy career. However, the nice thing here is the Victor Young score. Victor Young, one of the great all-time composers from the 30s and 40s, and uh, he just nails it here. He kind of finds themes that uh, match John Wayne's budding persona, and it's terrific. The uh, The film is basically a romance and uh, set in the Dust Bowl, and, uh, you know, it's got its moments. It's a, it's a, it's it's above a B film. I'd say it's like a B-plus film at the time. So that's uh, all three of those on Blu-ray. Wait, I have something very special to announce. Yes. There is a movie. Uh, and what movie would that be? Out on the Blu-ray. The- it is a movie that really, in one film, I, I, encapsulated everything that sucked about the years <laughs> that that DC was making Superman and Batman films, and Marvel just seemed like just the retarded step cousin who just couldn't get it together. You know what I mean? And we are talking about the literally the greatest example of those fallow years for Marvel. 
Albert Pune's Captain America. Albert Pune, the greatest director ever to come out of Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest, worst greatest Hawaiian director ever. This movie is so bad that I think the only way to watch it back in the day was like kind of bootleg VHS copies. I can say nothing bad about this because uh, my my very dear friend uh, Melinda Dillon is in this movie. It's and, just uh, so bad, and I I, I I know she had a great time making it, and uh, I kind of enjoy the film, so I'm not going to say anything bad about uh, Captain America. I am. <laughs> this is terrible. I mean, you know, look. It, it's just so campy, and and I have to say, you know, I'm very surprised. The Captain America from a couple of years ago with uh, what's his name, uh, Chris Evans, it was surprisingly decent. It was good. Yeah, Joe Johnston nailed it. Yep, yep. Uh, but this thing, this was just emblematic of how Marvel just could not get it together. Now, of course, Marvel has is uh, basically brilliant in the way that they've, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they've cross pollinated and cross marketed oh, yeah, all their films. I just think they've done an amazing job. Um, but it's just the worst. You guys have to rent this film, honestly. Please, please yeah. rent this film. Captain America from 1990. Um, it's just so bad. It's so low budge. And Matt Salinger, you know, he's Captain America. He's fine, but just it's a movie so bad. Anyway, we have um, we have a couple of films from back in the day. You know, during the uh, uh, 80s, especially the early 80s, was sort of the um, the heyday, late 70s too, the heyday of like the low budget horror film. And there's one that um, kind of slipped through the cracks, and there's a reason for that because it sucks. But it is from Scream uh, Scream Factory, which is kind of Shout Factory's uh, you know little kind of horror cousin it's called the burning and this is on blu-ray and dvd it's the collector's edition whatever that means um it's a film about uh summer camp you know a bunch of crazy kids decide that they want to you know goof on the camp's uh, caretaker and the camp's caretaker doesn't like that and he winds up taking revenge so uh it's called the burning and it's totally cheesy totally 80s totally ridiculous and if you like that kind of stuff, you'll dig it, but I'm just saying it's not, like, great. Although, what's funny about this movie is that it was the screenplay. It's by Bob Weinstein. Oh, that's right. I knew that. I'd Ooh. forgotten about that. I just hit the mic. That's okay. I hit it earlier. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, there you go. So that's uh, The Burning. Not a great film, but it is... Uh, it is a, uh, if, if you've already seen all your Halloweens and all your fogs and all your whatevers from that era, go for The Burning. Anyway, the town that dreaded sundown is... Uh, uh, it's kind of a weird little not very good killer on the loose film from 1976. The reason why it's based on a true story, but the reason why this film is notable is because it co-stars Don Wells from Gilligan's Island. Oh, sweet! It really does. Don Wells. Oh, gotta love that. I have her. Um, I have her uh, cookbook. Her Gilligan's <laughs> Island cookbook. You have her chained in your signed, basement, which she signed. Exactly. I have her chained. Thank you, boy. Thank. Way to drag the show literally into the gutter. Mm-hmm. Now, I love Lee Van Cleef. The reason why I love Lee Van Cleef is because he's awesomely cool, and he, he was in Escape from New York. I love him for both oh, reasons. that's right. He is in Escape from New York. Hell he's yeah. The, he's the dude. He's, Damn the, right. he's the guy who sends him on the mission. That's right. Anyway, Lee Van Cleef is in, uh, it's, it's kind of a spaghetti Western, Western-ish kind of a thing, um, but it's cool. It's about a sheriff. It's about, a, uh, it's about these brothers who hire these uh, paid killers to bring, a, to bring another killer back to justice. And Lee Van Cleef is in it, and it's kind of cool. It's from Blue Underground called Grand Duel. It's uh, from 1972. It was in the uh, the heyday of Lee Van Cleef's totally, you know, Lee Marvin, Colburn-esque mm-hmm. badassery. Yep. You know, whereas when he did Escape from New York, he was kind of a little bit older. And, he's awesome. But he's awesome. He is one of those awesome guys. Uh, you know, Hal Hartley. Mark, what do we think about Hal Hartley? Lame. What? Are you serious? you got to love Hal Hartley. Why? These movies are funny and they're quirky and they're odd and they're they're kind of uh, deadpan and so forth. But that, that, but that's all they are. You're always making fun of directors who never like do anything different. And Hal Hartley is the, is the like king of doing nothing different. No, Hal Hartley. Here's what Hal Hartley does differently. And and by the way, Hal, some of Hal Hartley's movies are just uh, incredibly heavy and deep. They really are. I mean, he's done some fine fine films. Anyway, Olive uh, has uh, secured a rights to do the Hal Hartley collection. Now, obviously, they the rights for these films are all over the place. You know what the Hal Hartley collection is? It's 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 the same blue. It's the same Blu-ray. <laughs> Just copied like five times oh, no, and put no, it into no. a box set because he always does the same thing. No, some of the films are really, really good. Uh, the Unla- Maybe some of the earlier ones. 
Maybe the, the Unbelievable the, Truth. Some, well, The Unbelievable Truth is the first one I'm going to talk about right here from uh, 1989, The Unbelievable Truth, which is, is still so tragic to watch because Adrienne Shelley just is such a power in this film. And I miss her so much uh, as, a, as an actress and as a director. I just really think that, that just her, her passing is so tragic. But The Unbelievable Truth, Truth is uh, kind of the film that really, really put uh, Hartley on the map for a lot of people. Um, it, it really just it, it cool. You know, one of the things that's cool about his films, he shoots everything with a 50-millimeter lens. He never, never changes focal lengths. All of his That's, films, top to bottom, why all is the way that through, good? It, because it just it creates that austere kind of a look. He just he likes fifty. <laughs> if, if, if if I told you like like JJ Abrams only shoots with a fifty millimeter lens, I'd say he wouldn't. Like ask. that's why he sucks. He sucks. He totally sucks. But Hal Hartley does it, and it's cool. And I readily admit that. I have a double standard. Nothing wrong with that. Um, it, really, a super cool film. Robert John Burke, who of course. Um, is another staple of the uh, the Hal Hartley uh, acting group, uh, who would go on to be an absolutely terrible RoboCop. But uh, he's really good in Hal Hartley's movies. He just he he knows the dialogue and he delivers it like just you know in that cool breezy staccato way. I don't know why Christopher Walken has never been in a Hal Hartley film. I would think that Christopher Walken would be tailor made for these movies. He and Jeff Goldblum would be great in a Hal Hartley movie. Especially because talk. especially because Christopher Walken always has to dance in his films. That's yeah. like an inside joke. Yeah. And I, you know Hal Hartley would let him dance. Yeah, well, anyway, a, a, this is just such a great, cool, weird relationship movie. And uh, it also includes on Blu-ray the, um, uh, the, the Tut and Its Consequences on the making of the film and a short film called Opera Number no. 1, which uh, Hal Hartley made with Adrian Shelley and Parker Posey. And uh, speaking of... Parker Posey is also in the, uh, this other film uh, with Martin Donovan, another regular of uh, Hal Hartley's movies, uh, called Flirt. And Flirt is, a, is another really, really cool film from the early Hartley period. This is from 1995. And uh, there's another one that he made just a couple of years before this called um, was it Simple Men, Simple Men, which included uh, Martin Donovan and um, uh, Robert John Burke as brothers. And I don't know where that film is on Blu-ray, but I sure want it. Uh, so anyway, we've got Flirt, which is also a really, really fun film. I'm going to move through this real quickly. And then we've got uh, Meanwhile, which is one of his more recent films from 2011, uh, starring DJ Mendel, which I found surprisingly engaging. And then also there is a double feature here of two films that I had never seen before, which I'm glad I got an opportunity to see. They are not on Blu-ray. This is a uh, double feature on DVD, but it is part of their Hal Hartley collection brand at the moment. And that is The Girl from Monday and The Book of Life. Uh, Book of Life from 1998 and The Girl from Monday more recently, 2005. Uh, both of them very short films. Book of Life is 63 minutes long and The Girl from Monday is 84 minutes long. So this is like, uh, you know, uh, two movies in the time that it takes you to watch uh, uh, The Great Gatsby. And I would say this is a better investment of time. Um, there's also a cool little making of uh, featurette here uh, for The Girl from Monday, which I thought was really, really enjoyable. And uh, a, a little uh, look back at the uh, Book of Life as well. So I thought... Uh, I think that's really sharp stuff. I'm looking forward to more. I hope there are more Hal Hartley films that they're able to get. So good, good for Olive in uh, putting that together. Whatever uh, way, you yep. and your Hal Hartley love. Absolutely. Makes Hal no Hartley sense. Love. And then uh, got a couple of Disney films here. Well, they're not really Disney Disney films. They are Studio Ghibli films, but Disney has released them. So you have uh, the, the greatness of Miyazaki finally on Blu-ray in these Blu-ray DVD combos, My Neighbor Totoro and Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, I, gotta, I, I love a lot of Miyazaki. I think both of these are very fine films. I just find it weird that suddenly Miyazaki has become like a Disney brand. I, I don't like that at all. It's very strange. Um, Howl's Moving Castle, not really one of my favorites. I think it's a, a little bit of a strange uh, steampunk fusion with anime that doesn't quite work so well, but it's very nice, very nicely done. My Neighbor Totoro, however, is really cool, very fun, and uh, some good voice casting here with uh, Tim Daly, Dakota Fanning, Elle Fanning, and Leah Salonga. I just adore Leah Salonga. I interviewed her once, you know that? That's why you adore She's her. She's fantastic. Just fantastic. I interviewed her for, for Aladdin because she was the singing voice of, uh, uh, of the princess in Aladdin. Thank Steve, you very much. Steve the princess? Precisely. <laughs> Wait, Steve, Steve the princess. That's it. Exactly. Wait, uh, it's the uh, 30th anniversary of a, of, of, of a beloved bad film that I love, National Lampoon's Vacation, with Chevy Chase. And I defend Chevy Chase, even though he's kind of a jerk now. I think now. the film is hysterical. I think this film is a riot. Yep, it is funny because it, uh, it has Randy Quaid in it, and he's always funny. And John Candy. 
the great thing is that the movie has, it's from 83, it contains an 85-minute documentary, which is like kind of almost as long as the actual film. Uh, but anyway, Vacation is just great. It's from 82, it's about the Griswold family going to Wally World, and you can't not love that. Uh, commentary by Held Ramis, Chevy Chase, Randy Quaid, Anthony Michael Hall, who played the, the son. And so, it's good stuff. Vacation is funny stuff, Wade. You love it. Now, they're supposed to be making a new Vacation. And they're trying to get that off the ground. And mm-hmm. I really hope that um, they don't do that. Because there, there was something about these films. What's the point of doing Vacation without Chevy Chase? It's, it's, plus, it's going to wind up costing like, you know, it's $80 million. It's going to be ch- charmless and not funny. What, what? And all like ironic and See, snarky. What was the point of doing Arthur without Dudley Moore? You know what I'm saying? Well, I, don't like, mind them, I, don't, I don't mind them doing Arthur without Dudley Moore. It's just don't make it like... But, but they, they can't seem to understand. In today's Hollywood... This is amazing. I know this is a sidebar, but we do this all the time. In today's Hollywood, where they are minimizing the power of actors, where they're trying to get away from the star system, you know, all these posters this summer, they all minimize the actors' faces. Like, even Elysium, you don't see Matt Damon's face. You know, you don't see Johnny Depp's face anywhere on the poster for The, uh, for the, the Lone Ranger. I mean, they really are trying to just brand these things in as concept films, not star vehicles. But don't they understand that some roles cannot be branded. You cannot divorce certain roles from the actors who made them iconic. Arthur was not a great film in people's minds because they just love the concept of Arthur. It's all about Dudley Moore. You can't do an Arthur film without Dudley Moore. You can't just stick another comic in there and expect it to work or work for a different generation. Same thing with with Vacation. People don't go, oh, I love those Vacation movies. Well, not because of Chevy Chase. I just love them because they're just people on vacation. Well, no, they're Chevy Chase vehicles. If you have another actor that you want to put into a vacation movie, invent a new vehicle for that actor. Don't call it vacation. Yeah, but Arthur was Arthur also because of the script. I mean, True. obviously Dudley Moore but was in, great. Oscar then, nominated. Since then, people identify the character with Dudley Moore. Well, that's fine. But what you do... You if, can't if, redo it. If you're going to redo it with Russell Brand, then you've got to have a better script. The thing is that these scripts are just... Call you it, know what it is? Make it a different movie. Thing give is Russell that, Brand a vehicle of his own. Why give him a Dudley Moore vehicle? I mean, Arthur was written by a guy who tragically died before... I, th- I think he actually died before the movie but, came out. He died... Was, was it a couple weeks before it came out? Oh, boy. I can't remember. He, but it was, it was, he, he died, he certainly died before the, uh, the Academy Awards. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but he was a singular guy. He was a singular wit. He wrote one great script and it was a classic. Now, if you do that film, it goes through the development process. Horrible. It just becomes another horrible piece of junk, push button script. Yeah. And that's what Arthur was. Yeah. Totally crapping on the legacy of the original. Terrible. And it's funny because like, you know, be, these development executives and Russell Brand too, I'm sure... They sign on to these things because they love the original, and it'd be great to be part of a remake. And then whatever they loved about the original, they're no longer that person. When they were like 19 years old and they saw Arthur and they thought it was so hilarious, now they're like you know a 45-year-old development executive, and they're not that person anymore. They're not that wide-eyed 19-year-old who was, so, who was so charmed and thought Arthur was so funny. Now he's like this bitter, middle-aged development executive who's got no sense of wonder, charm, or humor anymore, and he's beaten down by the system, and he winds up greenlighting a piece of crap, stupid script that is just by the numbers and lame. And that's why you get movies like Arthur, the remake. Also, by the way, on Blu-ray is uh, Vegas Vacation, which is from 97. By this time, uh, the series had... Run its course. <laughs> yes, it had. My goodness. It really has. So anyway, uh, but it, it does have Chevy Chase. But still, the original, the best, is National Lampoon's Vacation. Yes. I feel like you're, you're, you're giving me a, a show, like you're doing one of those TED Talks or something over there holding your microphone. You know, all those TED Talks are available on Netflix, and I've never seen one. I've never downloaded one on Netflix, but are they really that good? Some are. That you've got to like... Some are. Put them on Netflix? Yeah, some are. Wow. Yeah, yeah. there's like this one on, uh, on male sexual dysfunction. Absolutely worth every penny. Really? Yeah, especially for you. Did you get a lot out of it? I got a lot out of it, so to speak. Okay, uh, I'm going to blow through a list of Warner Archive titles. Warner Archive has been just, just burning up the road lately with a lot of great releases. Uh, Forbidden Hollywood Archive Collection, Volume 7. This is great. Four more um, pre-code films. The Hatchet Man with Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, she... He served two masters, love and hate. How great is that, right? The Hatchet Man. Uh, (laughs) An MGM film called Skyscraper Souls, uh, which is uh, not so great. It's just noteworthy because it has Gene Herschel in it. For those of you who want to see that, that, you know, there actually was someone named Gene Herschel for whom the Humanitarian Award is named. Uh, 
And then Warren William and Loretta Young in Employee's Entrance, which is a riot. Uh, that really is uh, about as risque as things could get back in the day. And then uh, the one that really nails this, apart from the Edward G. Robinson performance in The Hatchet Man, which is kind of funny, is uh, Betty Davis in Ex-Lady. Ex-Lady. Uh, it's a Warner Brothers film, of course, where Betty Davis uh, was a, uh, a, a, a part of the uh, Warner Brothers uh, system. And uh, pretty great. Uh, i got to tell you, X-Lady, really a lot of fun. So these are, these are great uh, pre-code films. Then we also have from the Archive Collection, uh, three films all thrown together here, Fast Company, Fast and Loose, and Fast and Furious, a triple feature of the wonderful uh, Fast films. Which, uh, you know, they're all different actors and actresses in these things. And it's kind of, um, I don't know why these films were popular at the time, i got to be honest with you. Uh, they inherited these from the MGM library, and I think Warner is just kind of throwing them out there. Melvin Douglas and uh, Florence Rice are the stars of Fast Company. Uh, Franchot Tone and Anne Southern are the stars of Fast and Furious. Nothing to do with the more recent film or even the Corman film. Uh, from the 60s, and then Robert Montgomery and Rosalind Russell in Fast and Loose. Um, you know, uh, some good actors here, some some kind of fun, screwball-ish comedy, but uh, really, truly nothing here that's going to, you know, make you uh, revisit film history in any great way. The uh, Nick Carter Mysteries were a showcase for Walter Pigeon, and there's a triple feature here of some more of those if you are a fan of Walter Pigeons. I happen to like Walter Pigeon in very few films. I like him in uh, the original Voice at the Bottom of the Sea, the feature-length film. But here you've got uh, Master Detective, Phantom Raiders, and Sky Murder. And, uh, you know, they're decent, uh, they're decent whodunits for the era. And we got a couple of uh, noir films here from the Film Noir Collection and the Arca, A Dangerous Profession with uh, George Raft and uh, Pat O'Brien. Pretty great. Uh, decent noir. Uh, and then Fall Guy, which is uh, kind of, you know, mixed feelings on Fall Guy. Really nicely done. The uh, script is a little screwy. It's based on a short story, short story called Cocaine by Cornell Woolrich. And... Uh, could be a good film to remake, I think, actually. But, uh, you know, Clifford Penn, uh, Robert Armstrong, Tiella Loring, Elisha Cook Jr., who, by the way, is wonderful in The Killing. Mark? I'm not Elisha li- Cook Jr. I'm not listening to you. No, you're not listening to me. You're just doing your own thing. Eddie Cantor in Kid Millions. Uh, you can probably pick this up uh, in various other versions, but I wouldn't. Uh, Eddie Cantor is a great actor. This is a re- Even though this is a DVD-R, it's a really good transfer. Uh, they did a nice job on this. I'd love to see that on Blu-ray someday. Uh, another Eddie Cantor film, Whoopi, which is part of their – these are both part of their Samuel Goldwyn classics line. Uh, Eddie Cantor, just great actor. And then we got a couple here that have been out on DVD before. And uh, you might think, well, I'd rather have them on DVD than on DVD-Rs. I would say no. I think the DVD-R gives you better quality of both of these. One is Howard Hawks' Land of the Pharaohs, which was a bit of a misfire, but, uh, you know, because Howard Hawks wasn't exactly a guy who was, you know, he was stepping into Cecil B. DeMille territory here. And um, it's a little bit of a strange film, but um, it's well done, and it looks much better on this DVD-R than it does on the uh, original DVD release. And then there was an image release of uh, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, the Tony Richardson film that was one of the seminal films of the angry young men kitchen sink realism period of British films in the 50s. And um, this is a better transfer as well. I think this is now the definitive uh, DVD release of this film. It deserves to be on Blu-ray. Please go to uh, warnerarchive.com and find a way to make comments and say, please release this on Blu-ray because this is a great film. Uh, A very young Tom Courtney before, obviously, things like uh, Dr. Zhivago stars, and it is just a magnificent movie. Um, It is, uh, it's it's one of those films that just defined the angry young man period, and it really, really established Tony Richardson as a... uh, as a director of this new generation, it is, it's just sensational and gorgeous black and white photography. Absolutely gorgeous. And a great John Addison score. So first rate all the way. And uh, then a couple more olive films before Mark dives into our, uh, our criterion stuff. Uh, let me pull here. You know, these are the ones that are worth talking about. I'll give these 
little shout out. Uh, Cloak and Dagger by Fritz Long, starring Gary Cooper, one of his American films. As we have talked about many times, when these great European directors came to Hollywood, they you know oftentimes didn't do their best work here, and they went they eventually go home. Fritz Long is one of them, though. I will say what Fritz Long was able to do within the confines of Hollywood studio filmmaking um, is pretty remarkable. His noirs are unusual, and uh, they are particularly polished, even though they are not his best films. He somehow find, made space for himself in the Hollywood system, and he gets a great performance out of. Uh, out of Gary Cooper here, and he's working on a uh, with a screenplay co-written by Ring Lardner Jr., who um, just he really gave him a lot to work with as well. So um, pretty fine film there from 1946, and then Marlon Brando in The Men, which I actually um, I was never a fan of for before because it kind of felt a little bit uh, like it was on the it laid it on kind of thick. You know, Carl Foreman wrote the screenplay, blacklisted uh, screenwriter. Stanley Kramer, who was never one for subtlety, uh, produced it. Uh, Fred Zinneman, you know, who could be great, who could be unsubtle, depending on the film, directed it. But uh, watching it now, I think I like it a lot better than I ever did before. Jack Webb is really good in it, and Teresa Wright is just luminous as always. Always love Teresa Wright. Um, In a way, this is kind of, you know, you could almost say this is uh, the the World War II version of... um, of uh, the uh, John Voight, Jane Fonda, Vietnam thing. Coming home. Coming home, thank you. Uh, the Man is kind of like the World War II version of Coming Home. And uh, in 1950, that was, you know, roughly the same proximity to the end of the war as uh, as Coming Home was. So, um, you know, and Fred Zinneman had already done From Here to Eternity. So this kind of caps off his World War II uh, his World War II themes and it doesn't feel as preachy now as it did the first time I saw it it makes for a very nice blu-ray beautiful black and white photography uh, so I can recommend this where I might not have recommended it before because you are lame yep you sure are sure am oh do I talk now yeah it's your turn criterion <laughs> us well there's only one oh, well there's two criterions uh, this week both from the same director Delmer Daves uh, one is called uh, from 1956 called Jubal this is with Glenn Ford, Ernest Borgnine, and Rod Steiger. So a great trifecta of great actors from uh, back in the day. Um, anyway, so uh, Ford plays a uh, cattleman, and he's uh, befriended by Ernest Borgnine, who's a, who's a ranch owner. And uh, he's, the ranch owner's got a little bit of a uh, mysterious past. And it's a good movie. I will not tell you any more than that, because uh, there are surprises to be had, um, including the Rod Steiger character. But it's good. I don't think that uh, Jubal is as good. It, was, it did very well at the time in 1956, but I don't think that Jubal is as good as... Um, by the way, I should mention, which I didn't, that the movie is kind of a reworking of Othello, um, which kind of gave it some cachet back in the day. And the, ca- and the character Jubal has a last name uh, that Jubal, they never mentioned because it's kind of embarrassing, but Jubal's last name is actually Lee. I, you know what? I knew it. I goddamn freaking knew it. <laughs> in fact, what I was going to say was, here's what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that his last name was like, you know, whatever, Esteban or something, or Edwards, which meant that his name was Jubal E. No, I wasn't going to go that uh, deep. That, uh, that it's, deep? It's, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's too bad of a joke to actually have too much of a setup to. Yeah. So you have to, you have to, you have to move, get in and out very quickly before people realize it's a bad joke. Anyway, uh, good transfer as usual. Um, unfortunately, very few of the um, usual... Um, Supplements we are used to with Criterion Collections. We really only have a uh, booklet featuring an essay by Ken Jones, who's done a lot of essays for Criterion product. Much better in my eyes is 310 to Yuma, the original. This is the Dumber Davies film from 1957. This, of course, was uh, thrillingly remade by, um, by what's his name, James Mangold a couple years ago. Uh, love that film. This film is also very good, too. This is uh, from 1957. Uh, it's really good. Van Heflin plays the cattle rancher who has to escort Glenn Ford to the train. that will deliver him to prison. And uh, I like this film a lot. There's a couple more extras here than there were on uh, Jubal. There's a uh, new interview with Elmore Leonard, who wrote the original source material, and Glenn Ford's son, Peter Ford, and there's also another Kent Jones essay. So supplement-wise, this is not great. However, uh, the good news is that um, Criterion found very good elements, and they did a 4K transfer. So both these films are looking real good, but I love 310 to Yuma. It's a good film. Jubal, maybe you'd want Jubal after you pounded down 310. But uh, two good films from Criterion. 
And I don't, I don't mind the remake of 310 to Yuma. I oh, really it's great. I really Thrilling. I mean, a lot of people were really, they were cruel about it. They, really? They, yeah. They, Ben Foster, who was like, who's this guy, Ben Foster? Who was like, wow, you're, you're the best. He is, right? He's like, he's like Ryan Gosling, except like grittier. Although I'm, that's uh, even possible. I'm kind of worried about him. He hasn't really done much of note lately, and I'm kind of. He's been in a few low budgety things, but yeah, I think I it's because he's considered like a second tier Ryan Gosling. I think that's part of the problem. He's awesome. We have a uh, handful of titles. To it... just... No, no, oh. no, we're not doing that today. Oh. Next week. Next week, uh, we have a handful of titles, just kind of uh, one offs to wrap out with this week. Uh, one of them is uh, Fernando DeLeo's Shoot First, Die Later. This has been out from uh, the Raro video line on uh, DVD before. It's now out on Blu-ray. It is a 1974 Italian gangster movie. And, uh, you know, if you're, I guess if you're a fan of Fernando DeLeo, uh, uh, Fernando DeLeo, you would be uh, inclined to want to get this on Blu-ray. I don't know that anybody else is really going to want to watch this for anything other than, say, a rental. So if you can grab it from Netflix or Redbox or something else and just DVD, you're, you're perfectly fine. It's not going to, uh, it's not going to become a different movie in, in high def. It's, uh, but that being said, it certainly does have its um, reputation in the Italian crime uh, corpus, but uh, compared to American films of this type, and certainly compared to, I'd say, even British, you know, gangster films from the from the same period, um, it's not anything all that spectacular. And then we also have Spalding Gray and Swimming to Cambodia. Finally, Jonathan Demme's um, filming of his performance, his one man show, is out from 1987. It is uh, this made its way to us from the people who always bring us that hard to find stuff that nobody else releases. Shout Factory. Uh, and it is, um, you know, I gotta tell you, I don't really enjoy Spalding Gray. I respect the film. I certainly appreciate why people thought this was a great one-man performance. But it, you put this right up there with Gray's Anatomy, the Soderbergh film, and uh, I, I think it just defines everything that I find really annoying about all these storytelling guys. And that goes for that uh, squishy-faced guy who, that other one, what's the other storytelling guy who I, I can't stand? Altman made a film about him. What? That guy, oh, that, uh, Garrison that, Keillor? That, that creepy-looking big... Bigfoot thing, yeah. Can't stand him either. These guys are just like kind of go and ramble on and tell stories and pontificate. I don't really get any of them. But I will say this, Spalding Gray, I'm a little bit partial to just because of his sad demise. That makes me very sad. So even though I don't really enjoy this, I look at it and I'm just like, that guy should be still alive. Just true. Uh, speaking of, um, this is a bad transition, but speaking of uh, people who are also not still alive, Warm Bodies is a uh, surprisingly okay uh, twist on the old zombie tale. This is with uh, Teresa Palmer and uh, Nicholas Holt. All the kids, all the girls of the Nicholas Holt. Um, this is a zombie movie that surprisingly uh, emphasizes heart and romance over zombie cliches, even though it is obviously you know cool and fun and it's definitely a little bit campy and it doesn't take itself too seriously. But unlike all the other zombie films this one uh, emphasizes again emphasizes romance and uh, heart and i kind of liked it because it's kind of interesting I, I i don't know that um if, if you're like a walking dead you know badass genre purist you're gonna really like this but it was directed by jonathan levine or was that levine i don't even know levine levine you know tomato tomato he directed 50 50 which was 50 uh, 50 was 50 percent of a great film and 50 percent of an okay film but I was surprised that 50% was great, so it's all good. So uh, Jonathan, as I will call him, uh, is definitely a, a maker of interesting films that are better than they have any right to be and more serious-minded than they really you would figure them to be. So in that category, I put Warm Bodies. It's a zombie love story that sounds silly, and some of it is silly, but it's still, as a love story, more believable than a lot of other love stories I've seen that are dramas. And then from the Art House Music line, a uh, nice box set for people who love ballet. The, uh, the national... You know what, uh, you know what uh, Jonathan... Um... Jonathan Demme. No, the, oh, Jonathan Miller. No, John, uh, Jonathan... Uh... No, the, uh, the, uh, the character actor who always appears in Gary Marshall films. Jonathan Miller. Jonathan... No, plus, plus you know what? He said it about opera, too. Larry Miller. Larry Miller. Yeah, I now, Larry Miller. Jonathan. I, I was starting I to go know, like, like uh, through all my staple guys. but when you, when you said ballet, yes. I thought of what Larry Miller said about opera. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he said, I love opera because you can't get sleep like that at home. Uh, thank you. 
Well, this kind of ties into with opera a little bit. This is from the Paris National Opera, the Opéra National de Paris, but they are ballet classics, three ballets in particular, uh, Coppelia, Paquita, and Giselle. Not exactly uh, what you would, uh, you know, they're not like popular ballets in the sense that everyone recognizes the names. It's not like Swan Lake or something, but um, they're all really, really good. Originally uh, broadcast on French television, and they are just superb, really entertaining if you like ballet. And uh, the reason it is the you know National Opera of Paris is because the the uh, the op the orchestra the orchestra from the uh, National the Opera Opéra National de Paris that uh, plays for them. So it's all uh, it's all this melange opera and ballet everything that you hate. So that is uh, that's a wonderful that'd be a, like a nice gift an early Christmas gift. Go out and buy this for somebody. Hang on to it for the next you know uh, what do we have six months? Good. It's, get a get a Christmas gift or a you know Hanukkah gift out of the way early. We're done. There we go. We're done. All right. Uh, email us at godsatdigigods.com. Send us your emails, your Vox boxes. Uh, we we welcome them at any time. And uh, Mark, uh, the summer movie the summer movie season continues to roll along. Man of Steel. Man oh, of Steel. Boy. Will it be yeah. good? Will it not? I don't know. It's Man a, it's of a, Steel. I'll tell you. I will be the first person to eat crow. I will take back everything that I said about Zack Snyder if it actually turns out to be a good movie. Honestly, truly, if I see that movie and I go, you know what, Zack Snyder, you've grown up. I will. I will. Uh, your your previous movies have sucked, but you've come of age and uh, you really nailed it. And I I totally give you credit. I will. I will say that. I will say that on this show. And I will, I will totally go on the record as taking back all the nasty things I said about him previously. I, I don't expect that to happen. No, Nolan, Christopher Nolan will shave off the top twenty percent of Zack Snyder douchiness. Yeah. So all that's left is eighty percent of Zack Snyder's douchiness. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, fortunately, he's a hired hand here. But I just, I, I dread the whole, you know, fast, slow, fast, slow thing that he does, where you, where you, you know, drop things into slow motion and then speed it up again. I'm tired of that. It's, it's like the only stylistic thing that he knows how to do. It, it's, it gets old. If that's in this movie, I will roll my eyes from beginning to end. So, that being said, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.